last reading of the Business Record, Central Iowa's Business Weekly. This is the week of February 9th. I'm Pat Steele. All material heard on IRIS is intended for the use of listeners with, a print, with print disabilities. And now here's our first story. Our headline for this first story is Putting Theory into Practice, Teaching Skills Rather Than Memorization and Test-Taking Prepares Students for the Workforce, but Advocates Say That is not happening in most classrooms. This is a story wrote, written by Sarah Dean of the Business Record. Jan Verhoeven's decision to pivot from working as a scientist to being a high school science teacher set her on the path to a future working to shift the focus of education from teaching content to teaching skills. So often it's about what we teach. The main focus across the board is what are we teaching, but the how is the missing piece, I think, in STEM and actually in most of education, Verhoeven says. She's now a learning theorist, instructional designer, and leads the education startup QI Learning Research Group. But not coming from an education background initially, she had to learn how to best support students' learning. I wanted my students to be able to face any challenge when they got out of my class, she said. I wanted them to have the skills and the tools to be able to meet anything. When I was a first-year science teacher, I did not know how to do that yet. She started teaching by using lectures and labs, but it didn't feel like enough. She said, how do I get kids to be hungry about what they're learning? When it gets hard, when they go to college, and this is something hard for them to learn, how are they going to overcome that, she said. About three years into teaching, she found answers and theories of how people learn and understanding that everyone has an innate ability to learn. She flipped her classroom from then on, giving students more agency and responsibility for their learning. But she said coming to this realization also highlighted a flaw in education that some current teaching methodologies center on memorization and test-taking when our workforce and society have evolved to be skills-based. She said meeting the skills businesses need and employees now and in the future calls for evaluating how stakeholders across the state approach education. The World Economic Forum's 2023 The Future of Jobs report found that the top five qualities companies look for in workers were all based on skills, not content, Verhoeven said. The qualities are analytical thinking, creative thinking, resilience, flexibility and agility, motivation and self-awareness, and curiosity and lifelong learning. Verhoeven said that many of the qualities exhibited when people learn naturally align with ones needed to engage in STEM education, including curiosity and finding information. Tying education theory to practical applications in the classroom and for solving real-world problems is a connection that Ted Neal helps facilities for graduate-level students at the University of Iowa every semester. Neil is the program coordinator for the University of Iowa STEM Education Online Master's Program and previously an Iowa science teacher. He said a foundation in learning theory sets teachers up to go back and start incorporating inquiry-based learning, which differs from traditional teaching methods by putting students in a position to ask questions and solve problems. In an inquiry-driven classroom, what I would do is I would say to my kids, here's a bunch of wire, here's a bunch of batteries, and here's a bunch of light bulbs. Make the light bulb light, Neil said. Neil and Verhoeven are both working through their respective avenues to instill 
uh, theory-based practices and educators, but they say it's not widely applied across the state. A core challenge for Hoven said is the learning environment in schools hasn't supported the innate way students learn. She said, as decisions often come from leaders outside of the education field, teachers also need to have their voice in how they teach restored to bring in more research-based or research-backed practices. The problem is this, said Verhoeven, you can have teachers that come in with all this knowledge and theory, all the ways they know exactly how to teach effectively in a classroom, teaching skills, but they are faced with an institutional conflict between how they teach it and what they are actually expected to do. Individual teachers and several entities, such as Cedar Rapids Public School Program, Iowa Big, are some of the few in Iowa to integrate education theory into their teaching, Neil said. Barriers to further adoption include uncertainty among teachers about the ways it could affect how their classrooms operate and students' performance. I tell my teachers, you didn't go to college to just follow along. You came here to get an education, to lead, and to change, and to do better, he said. So we have pockets of teachers all over the place who are doing it and who are trying to get their colleagues to see and adapt and adjust. Some STEM education startups are also developing solutions that help bring learning theory into students' education. Parametric Studio is a startup based at the Iowa State University Research Park in Ames that has designed combinations of software, maker kits, and curriculum tailored to grade levels from preschool to 12th grade. Its co-founders, Christopher Whitmer and Atul Kelkar, are both engineers who saw an opportunity to use their subject knowledge and research to teach math and science using hands-on engineering projects and gamification, software tools they had already built to do early-stage engineering designs served as an entry point for connecting engineering concepts to the underlying math and science. Whitmer said, We built all these really great tools that would allow you to do early-stage design. What that means is you don't need to have a supercomputer to do it. You can basically do the modern equivalent of draw it on the back of a napkin and work it out, Wimmer said. When we thought about it, we were like, that's really a great way to teach math and science than using the math and science that you just did to design the thing you're building. The design that starts on a computer becomes hands-on by 3D printing the pieces, Whitmer said. As the company received research funding, Whitmer and Kelkar built out the core concept developing software that gamifies the process and skills involved in building bridges and wiring electronic circuits. Parametric Studio has brought several products to market and seen them validated as a partner with education distributors, but how the products are implemented in the classroom has been essential to the company's success. To build on their engineering backgrounds, Whitmer and Kelkar also engaged education research and outside expertise to determine effective ways to bring their ideas into schools. Education faculty at Iowa State have consulted with Parametric Studio to help identify how far to take each concept depending on the grade level it's targeted for, as well as test the tools with students. Whitmer said he found the user testing process that the indicators of an effective tool in an education setting are different than those in the software engineering industries. He said, your orders of priority are different when it needs to be an educational tool. 
What we've learned out of the education research is what things are important are not always the same things you would do to make a really cool game. They're not always the same things you would do to make a really cool project engineering system. But there are things that are really important to how you structure things so that it's doing the things that are necessary for education. With Faculty Insight, the tools were also designed so activities connect to standards that educators aim to teach and cover the multiple disciplines of math or science. Whitmer said we're doing an integrated approach, so if you only target the physics part of what we're doing, then it leaves a lot of other parts of what you're doing out. The real power is being able to synthesize all this stuff together. Connecting the standards embeds lessons about content, like fractions and a learning experience that also teaches skills. Verhoeven said practices like this show how skills-based teaching can be centered for STEM as well as other subjects. She said, once anybody knows how to teach something once, you can teach it with anything because it's skill. Skills are applicable to anything, she said. I can teach STEM with a piece of paper. We have to, as a society, recognize how we teach skills and emphasize that versus how we teach content. She said solutions based on learning theory and research would be more effective at addressing challenges across the education system, but steps toward that include bringing in educators at every step of the way and communicating to other stakeholders how theory ultimately affects the functions of the business and community. What we have to do is to connect education theory to what we want to do to use it to inform what we're doing, she said. When we do that, people start to listen because everybody wants to fix education. We want it to change. When Verhoeven hosts workshops with educators on bringing theory into their teaching methods, she said that teaching them how to also build partnerships with local businesses and community organizations helps make skill education sustainable. In one group of workshop participants, she saw several who, by the end of the year, navigated around a lack of resources and money to start STEM programs by working with community partners. And she said when educators bring an explanation of education theory and break down how it relates to proposed partnership, it is easy for businesses to buy in. Looking at STEM as a way we function in the world, Verhoeven said it's valuable to break down silos and bring students into businesses and other spaces that demonstrate how all skills and subjects they learn are interconnected. The complexity of real-world issues requires a multi-dimensional approach. It's not just STEM that we're elevating, but we're elevating to bring STEM into everything, she said. Neil said STEM often gets pegged as just science, technology, engineering, and math when it contains more breadth and depth. He said, Everybody wants to boil STEM down to one little soundbite. STEM is a philosophy of learning that is collaborative, that is real world, that is solving problems or asking big questions. It is using all the different skill sets of a class from writing to math, experimenting to data collection to graphing and manipulation. You have to be versed in all of it. Community partnerships are integral to the STEM master's program because it's a way more powerful thing to engage with local partners in the community when there are issues students can apply their skills to, he said. He said his vision for education in Iowa is that curriculum should be driven by the state's major industries like farming and energy and challenges such as water quality and supported by the large businesses in those fields that are seeking to build their workforce pipelines. 
I remember as a little kid driving down the road with my dad saying, how do you know when to plant? Why don't we teach that in first, second grade, he said. Why don't the kids get involved in farming and gardening when they're younger and learn how to put food on their own tables? That's what Iowa is. It's not just in schools where STEM education can happen, Verhoeven said. Attending programs at libraries or community clubs are the kinds of social factors that influence youth's interest in future career decisions, she said. They're also engaging because it's an environment where work is not graded and they have agency. That is true, authentic learning, she said. Neil said another example is the Iowa Sciences Phenomena Resources offered by Iowa PBS where students can investigate how natural phenomena in Iowa work. But in addition to forging key partnerships, fully integrating skills-based education in Iowa schools will require structural changes to the school system, Verhoeven and Neil said. Verhoeven said schools are running on an old business model focused on minimizing costs that does not allow education to evolve to be skills-based like businesses have. Implementing theory-based practice costs more up front, but would make teaching and learning easier on the back end, she said. It's actually easier when you use theory to teach than it is forcing kids to do worksheets and MacBooks and things like that, she said. It's easier. It's not cheaper. Neil said he believes structured change in education will have to be led by superintendents and principals as well as the legislature. Neil added, my simplest version is to make this happen. It's going to have to come legislatively. It's going to have to come with funding, and it's going to have to come then through the principals. He said a determining factor in this top-down change is if leaders give the teaching of interdisciplinary and scientific skills the same attention and value given to content along with support for implementation. We have to give equal value to the other couple of things, communication, collaboration, data analysis, graphing, answering questions, asking questions, finding solutions, he said. These other pieces are what the real business world needs, and the business world needs to step in and go, yep, those are the things we need also. Verhoeven said part of moving Iowa toward broader changes in education is continuing to work on what may seem like smaller changes, including changing the public narrative about education and empowering individuals to act. Verhoeven said, We only get stories of how education is broken in the aftermath of it, the shootings, the mental health, the failed tests, all of those things. We always think education is bad. Rather than do that, we need to elevate the things that are working and learn from them. Imagine if we could take a solution and publicize it, but not only publicize it, but talk about the bones of here's why it works this way, and here's how you, as anybody, as a community center, as a library, can take some of these best practices and start it in your community. Elsewhere in the business record, plan to expend Medicaid coverage for pregnant Iowans while tightening income threshold advances in the legislature. This is a story written by Nicole, uh, Nicole Grunmeyer of the business record. A proposal to extend the duration of Medicaid coverage for pregnant Iowans has widespread support, but some activists are concerned about the state potentially lowering the income threshold to participate in the program saying it would shut out low-wage working moms who desperately need prenatal care. Many of the people who spoke publicly about the bill at a subcommittee meeting on February 5th at the Capitol said they had mixed feelings about it, gratitude, but also concern. Cheney Yeast, Director of Government Relations and Family Services at Blank Children's Hospital in Des Moines, said, 
One of the things that I think needs to be the backdrop as we talk about this is we have a maternal mortality crisis. We have an infant mortality crisis. This is a single policy lever that you can pull to improve the health of moms and babies, but also support our workforce in Iowa. Yeast said that Blank Children's Hospital supports the bill and that she is grateful to everyone who made it happen, but that she has concerns about a change to the income requirement affecting working moms and potentially leaving them without prenatal care while pregnant. So those are moms that typically are working for small businesses that don't provide an employer-based insurance program, Yee said, noting that many of these women can't sign up for health insurance plan that is part of the Affordable Care Act if they find themselves pregnant outside of the open enrollment period. The Iowa Senate subcommittee unanimously approved Senate Study Bill 3140, which would provide 12 months of continuous postpartum Medicaid coverage for new moms with income at or below 215% of the federal poverty level, often abbreviated as FPL, again, federal poverty level. Right now, Iowa law allows for just 60 days of Medicaid coverage after pregnancy ends. Iowa is one of just three states that have not extended postpartum Medicaid for a full year. Currently, Pregnant Iowans can participate in the Medicaid program if their household is at or below 375% of the federal poverty level. If enacted, the eligibility change could affect over 1,000 women a year. Molly Servan, Deputy Chief of Staff and Legislative Liaison for Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' office, which drafted legislation, said, Iowa currently has the highest federal poverty level eligibility in the nation for pregnant women at 375%. This proposal brings Iowa in line with other states. Severn said the new eligibility requirement would be a household income of $42,000 per year or less for a single mom having her first baby and a household income of $64,000 per year or less for a family of four. The governor's proposal offers coverage for those who truly need it. In fact, even at 215% of the federal poverty level, Iowa would have the 13th highest FPL in the nation for pregnant women. It also includes coverage for newborns at 302 uh, FPL. This would also be the 13th highest FPL in the nation for infant coverage, Severin said. The full Senate Health and Human Services Committee advanced the bill February 7th on a 9-5 to vote, which keeps the proposal alive for debate this year. Republican lawmakers said they were comfortable with the lower eligibility threshold. Senator Janet Peterson, a Des Moines Democrat, on February 7th said, I know Iowa policymakers can do better by pregnant women and babies in this state. An identical bill is also progressing in the Iowa House. The year following a birth is especially dangerous for women. More than half of maternal deaths in the United States occur after a birth. Suicide is the number one cause of maternal death in the first year postpartum, according to the Iowa chapter of Postpartum Support International. Postpartum complications include conditions such as perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, blood clots that if left untreated can cause a pulmonary embolism or death, postpartum uh, heart failure, strokes, hypertension, incontinence, mastitis, postpartum preeclampsia, and postpartum eclampsia, infections, and sepsis 
uncontrolled vaginal bleeding, and more. Stacy Freeland, Government Relations Director at the American Heart Association, said the bill would help a lot of moms and babies, especially when you think about how difficult having a baby is. It's like the stress test of the body. Freeland said that the American Heart Association is undecided on the bill because of the change related to the income requirements with the federal poverty level and unintended consequences. When you think about Iowa, you think about our workforce. It's different than other states. Sometimes we have a lot of smaller businesses that might have 10 or fewer employees. We've got farmers. We've got people who are helping on the farms. We have people who are taking care of children, daycares, etc. Freeland said she is worried about people living between the old and newly suggested federal poverty level who also could be shut out of prenatal care. And again, that story is written by uh, Nicole Grunmeyer. She's a staff writer and copy editor at the Business Record, and she also writes for Fearless and covers arts and culture. Elsewhere in the uh, February 9th edition of the Business Record, Green State Credit Union names a new CEO. Green State Credit Union announced Tuesday that Vikram Iswani was appointed its new CEO. He succeeds Todd Fanning, who served as interim CEO since September following Jeff Disterhoff's retirement from the company. According to a news release, Green State's board of directors partnered with global search firm Spencer Stewart on a nationwide search. Israni most recently served as Chief Financial Officer of Wings Credit Union, which is based in Apple Valley, Minnesota. He has more than 25 years' experience in the financial services industry, including roles with Bank of America and Canada-based ATB Financial. The board was resolute what we are looking for our next leader to have, a strong financial background to help navigate these challenging economic times, but also someone with the charisma and character to lead our growing team. Our board was impressed by Vic's visionary leadership, strategic acumen, and commitment to the credit union philosophy, and that's according to Fred Mims, who's chair of the Green State Board. Israni has an MBA from American Graduate School of International Management, Thunderbird, and a bachelor's degree from St. John's University. New ICON report shows we're on the right path. Report shows economic impact of activated ICON sites. This is a story written by Michael Crum of the Business Record. When ICON Water Trails was conceived as an idea, those behind the initiative hoped it would one day enhance outdoor recreation in central Iowa and serve as a placemaking attraction that would help draw people to the region. With 15 regional sites along 150 miles of rivers and creeks in central Iowa now activated. When complete, ICON will link 80 sites and work underway on the, and work is underway on the Scott Avenue site along downtown Des Moines Riverfront. Organizers of ICON say they now have data that shows those hopes are being realized. ICON this morning announced the completion of a report that shows those 15 sites have generated $20 million to the region's economy. The report looked at visitors to the 15 sites and their related activities in the area between the months of March and October 2022. It found found that there were more than 250,000 visits to those sites during that time period, with 31% of those coming from local visitors. The report is the latest in the Life of the Initiative, which began as Central Iowa Water Trails before being rebranded as Icon Water Trails in July 2021. It is a $125 million initiative that is being funded through a combination of a capital campaign and public money. 
Stephanie Oppel, ICON's executive director, said that knowing the economic impact of those sites at this point will help with planning as other sites are activated. This is important to us from a user standpoint to understand how they're engaging with the water trails and how they're engaging with what is around those trails so we can see the potential as we grow this network. We know that these spaces are economic drivers, but we didn't know the extent of how they were driving consumer spending. Being able to put pen to paper and understand that overall impact so that we can really unlock that potential and have conversations with folks about those access, point, those access points, what's around those points, and then also bring in future communities to ICON, really making that business case for outdoor recreation and its potential. Apple said they are spending money associated with these visits, and that can have a real impact on the bottom line for communities when you think about tax revenue and the potential for small businesses in the area. I really want people to see they should not be overlooking outdoor recreation as just this kind of nice thing that it can be a really critical component to a thriving community. According to the report, there was also an estimated $16 million health savings as a result of Icon Water Trails. One finding in the report that stood out to Apple was that local users of the water trail spend around $27 during their visit to a water trail site, with non-local users spending around $86 per visit. With more sites, including downtown Des Moines sites, yet to be activated, Apple said the overall economic impact of Icon Water Trails is expected to increase. These numbers are going to grow, and we're going to see that both from central Iowa residents, but also from people who are willing to travel from around the state to access these amenities, and people are going to come from all parts of the country. Catherine Kuhnert, Vice President of Economic Connections and Integration at Mid-American Energy Company, said the report shows we're definitely on the right path. Our visitation of being able to do these things has already come to be, and we only see more upside as they continue to advance these projects, said Kuhnert, who also sits on the ICON Board of Directors. She added, it shows that when you come to Des Moines, there's lots of things to do in the region. This is proving to connect our visitors to the entire region that allows people to enjoy all the amenities within the region. It's hitting home exactly what we want to do. The energy company previously created a $5 million fund to help activate regional ICON sites. The data contained in the report will help create greater awareness and build support for ICON, Kunert said. Data helps validate and help provide the information that people need to either get behind it or do more, she said. When you see other communities and the benefits they're receiving, whether it's with the number of visitors, when you see a $20 million impact, the impact on health savings and we're affecting water quality, that should be an impetus in those who drive the decision to do more. Johnston Mayor Paula Dierenfeld said the effects the sites are having on the community are already being seen. Johnston has two sites that have already been activated with a third site, a third site planned for later this year. Dierenfeld said, but it's going to be important that the entire regional system be built out so there will be even more benefit. As additional amenities are built out and more excess sites are put in, that would be more incentive for people to drop in here at Johnston and go all the way to downtown Des Moines. As those additional sites are installed, it will only increase the economic opportunity for all of us. Deerenfield, who also serves in the ICON board, said she envisions amenities such as bars, restaurants, and retail being developed around those sites as the system is built out. This is going to be a huge draw for Central Iowa, she said. 
when you can offer that as a total experience for people, we're going to appeal not only to people locally, but I think it's going to be a national draw to bring people into central Iowa. That $20 million is only going to increase exponentially. Because it's a regional system, we will all benefit from it. The full part will be released in a virtual event on Wednesday, February 28th, and it'll be released publicly following the event. The report, compiled by Indianapolis, Indiana-based Pearls Consulting, used a combination of observed visit data, anonymous mobile data, mobile network coverage, weather patterns, air quality indices, and descriptive data from parks to create a methodology to derive the data contained in the report. Apple said that one thing she hopes people take away from the report is that outdoor recreation is not only a nice thing to have, but is essential to the community to contribute to a healthier lifestyle for its residents. She concluded, thinking about the vitality of our communities, this really shows that planning for outdoor recreation in general and water trails specifically is a really critical component from a lot of different perspectives. And again, that was an article written by Michael Crum, a senior staff writer at the Business Record. You're listening to this week's edition of the Business Record, February 9th, 2024. Our thanks to the folks at Business Publications for providing a copy of the Business Record to Iris so that we can read it for you. If you have any comments on this or any other Iris program, please give us a call at 515 515- Two four three six eight three three. Now back to the business record. Trailside Tap in Ankeny is clearing the path toward expansion. This is an article written again by Michael Crum of the Business Record. Trailside Tap could break ground at an expansion this fall that would nearly quadruple the size of the bar and restaurant in Ankeny's uptown neighborhood. The 2,600-square-foot business located on Southwest 3rd Street continues to evaluate its plan and the timing for flipping the switch on the expansion, said Jake Hapke, who owns the business with his wife, Brenna. The timing is going to happen when it's right for us to pull the trigger, he said. There isn't a specific date on when we're going to do it. We're just waiting for the right time to dial in the cost to make sure it's a sound business decision. According to Happy, the plan is to raise a vacant house on an adjacent property and expand trailside to nearly 10,000 square feet. He said getting everything in order to prepare to demolish the house and the cost of construction have delayed those plans. According to the plans, the current restaurant will become a bar area. The main level of the planned expansion will include what Happy described as a gourmet kitchen area where customers can see what's happening in the kitchen when the the menu will offer a different opportunity for different food. It will really give them a different level of experience, he said. It will be partitioned into areas that will allow for groups to rent out space without having to shut down the business. There will be an enclosed rooftop bar and open patio area. It really gives three spaces, said Happy, and opens the doors to do some more fun stuff. Before that can happen, a house that sits on an adjacent lot must be torn down, which Happy said he hopes will happen this spring. The house has been vacant for several months, uh, said Happy, who bought the property with expansion plans in mind. Trailside is also working with the city of Ankeny to satisfy requirements before finalizing its plan. Happy said that construction likely would not happen until at least this fall because he doesn't want to disrupt the busy outdoor summer patio season. He said that Trailside, which was once a convenience store, the Happy remembers riding his bicycle to as a child growing up in Ankeny and getting slushies and candy, 
has seen a huge increase in business because of its proximity to the High Trestle Trail bike trail. The business has also grown a reputation for quality food and service because of its team, he said. As we get busier, we can only fit so many people in the building, and we've identified that there's this huge opportunity to grow and to be able to have a bigger kitchen that puts uh, out more food in different ways. The expansion will also allow Trailside Tap to provide a menu to Fire Trucker Brewery, which is located on the other side of the house that's going to be raised, and provide easy access between the two businesses. Happy said he hopes Trailside Tap's expansion will continue to add to the character and history of Ankeny's uptown neighborhood. It's just an extension for the growing city of Ankeny to have more places to go and the history of it and redeveloping uptown Ankeny is exciting. He said Uptown is full of mom and pop shots, mom and pop shops that support one another and the community, and that's what I think Uptown is all about. Happy said, local people doing what they love to do, and it's really fun to see how it's even changed over the last handful of years. It's a historical area of Ankeny. It's where it all started. And now we move to real estate news in the business record. Kathy Bolton writes uh, this article, and the headline is Office Property in Johnson Sold for $30 Million. Office Property in Johnson that was developed around 2014 has been sold for $30 million. Pioneer Hybrid International, based in Johnston, paid ARCP OFC Johnston uh, $30 million for the property located on Northwest 62nd Avenue. The 14-acre parcel was developed in 2014 by Ryan Companies Incorporated, who sold it to a real estate investment trust for $37.8 million that year. DuPont's Pioneer Crick Research Center is located on the 184,658-square-foot building. DuPont Pioneer is wholly owned subsidiary of Corteva AgriScience. The property is valued at $30.6 million. In other real estate transactions, RCJH, based in Ankeny, paid Gage Industrial $3 million for property at uh, Northwest Johnson Drive in Johnston. The 2.3-acre parcel includes a 17,700-square-foot building that includes office and warehouse space. The property, valued at $1.5 million, was developed in 2006. Robert O'Mara paid Travis and Carolyn Cullen $1.5 million for property on Northeast 64th Street in Elkhart. The three-acre parcel includes a one-story, 3,057-square-foot house that was built in 2005. Wyla LLC, located in Huxley, paid Benjamin and Andrea Hall $1.56 million for 134 acres on Northeast 104th Street and Northeast 134th Avenue between Ankeny and Elkhart. The property is mostly farm ground, and the transaction was recorded on the 31st of January. Stubbs Development Incorporated, located in Altoona, paid Seek and Set, LLC, and Valor Home Builders $1.5 million for eight lots in the 4300 block of Northeast 14th Street in Des Moines. The lots all include recently built duplexes. And in Dallas County, one real estate development there. Uh, Darrell Lee LLC, located in Grinnell, paid Hickman Road Properties $1.44 million for property at 15950 Hickman Road in Clive. 
The property includes a 5,600-square-foot strip retail center that was built in 2006, and that property is valued at $1.26 million. And again, this is an article written by Kathy Bolton, a senior staff writer at the Business Record. Now we move to the opinion columns in the Business Record. Uh, We'll read today the Elbert Files. It's written by Dave Elbert, and his uh, column this week is Two Old Men. It has become fashionable to denigrate old people, or at least old politicians. Before Senator Dianne Feinstein, a Democrat, died last fall at age 90, her apparent dementia had become a punchline for comedians and good government types. The same was true of Republican Senator Mitch McConnell after he froze mid-sentence a few times last year while giving interviews. Of course, the real focus of such discussions are Joe Biden, age 81, and Donald Trump, age 77. If elected president in November, Biden will be 82 years old when he begins a second term in 86 by the end of that term. Trump will be 78 if he enters the Oval Office again and 82 at the end of a four-year term. That is why 52-year-old Republican Nikki Haley asked audiences, are we really going to say that we're okay with having our options be two 80-year-olds that run for president? Biden is already the oldest U.S. president ever, Ronald Reagan was the previous office holder. He was 78 when he left office in 1989 with what some believe were early signs of Alzheimer's disease, which was diagnosed in 1994 and took his life in 2004. But no matter how many times now earnestly Haley and others asked the age question, the answer so far seems to be yes, although it is not an answer that gives comfort. We just saw a future Hall of Fame football coach retire well ahead of their 80th birthdays. In recent weeks, Nick Saban, age 72, stepped down from coaching in Alabama after 16 years. Pete Carroll, also 72, agreed to retire from the Seahawks. And Bill Belichick, age 71, was canned by New England Patriots. Two years ago, we saw legendary Duke basketball coach Mike Krzyzewski hang up his whistle at age 75. In real life, most coaches wind up doing something completely different long before they get close to 70. An Iowa exception is Iowa Hawkeye football coach Kirk Ferentz, who at 68 is now the second oldest active NCAA football coach behind North Carolina's Mac Brown, who is 72. Coaching football or basketball at the college level has to be stressful in a changing world of portal transfers and NIL, name, image, and likeness, payments to college athletes. But even so, it has to be a cakewalk compared with the stresses of being the leader of the free world. Many professions have clearly marked exit doors. Airline pilots have to retire at age 65, and corporate governance rules at many large businesses set mandatory retirement ages for chief executives, typically at 65. Medicine and law do not have institutionalized retirement ages, but most hospitals and law firms have guidelines that encourage doctors and lawyers to at least step back, if not fully retire, sometime around 70. Most academic institutions have provisions for emeritus professors that allow them to remain active in their chosen fields while avoiding the stress of critical daily decision-making. Even the Catholic Church, one of the most conservative institutions in history, recognized the AIDS issue long before it admitted to other problems. As far as back as the 1970s, bishops have been required to retire by age 75, and cardinals older than 80 can no longer vote for a new pope. An article by Fintan O'Toole 
titled Elder Statesman, the January 18th issue of the New York Review of Books, noted that the United States is an outlier among nations when it comes to retirement by political leaders. The average age for members of parliaments in Europe, Australia, and Canada is many years younger than in the United States, O'Toole noted, adding that even the Chinese Communist Party has an unwritten rule that targets retirement at age 68. O'Toole wrote that 79% of U.S. citizens favor maximum age limits for elected federal officials, which would require a constitutional amendment. All well and good, but we all know that won't happen, at least not in my lifetime. For the record, I'll be 77 years old when I vote in November. Again, that's an opinion column written by David Elbert, a longtime columnist for the business record. And our next column is uh, written by Susanna DeBaca of the Business Record, and the column this week is entitled On Leadership, How to Lead When Your Team Members Know More Than You. In my early 30s, I was leading a department of a Wall Street firm when we acquired a boutique investment practice. I suddenly found myself leading a team of very successful portfolio managers, all men 20 to 30 years older than me, who had decades of industry experience. I panicked. How could I provide any value or even remotely supervise people who knew so much more than I did? My boss advised me to take a deep breath. He said I'd actually been given a gift, a team of experts. He pointed out that these men didn't need any help with investing. What they needed from me was help with strategy, planning, and operations, and for me to remove obstacles so that they could get on with their jobs. You don't need to know what they know, my boss said. Your job is to help them shine. Since that time, I've repeatedly led people who know more than I do, who have a very different type of skills, including physicians, lawyers, accountants, facilities managers, analysts, and journalists, to name a few. I've been grateful to work with such talented people. So if you're leading teams or individuals who know more than you and you're nervous about it, relax. There's plenty of research that suggests your team members do not need you to be able to do their job. Rather, they need you to lead and they need you to care. Employees want leaders who are more empathetic, compassionate, self-aware, excellent communicators, and can coach them to success instead of micromanaging or distrusting their work, said a recent Forbes article on leadership trends for 2024. A survey on leadership challenges in 2024 conducted by the Harvard Business Publishing Corporate Learning revealed that humanizing leadership in the digital age will be increasingly important, saying while the focus on technology skills grow, leaders still lead people, so there will be a continued emphasis on inspiring, motivating, and enabling a greater sense of belonging in the next year. But business and leadership can be emotional. So it's natural that you might feel you should be the expert and have all the answers because that is impossible, especially in an age of technology, uh, excuse me, and specialization. The priority on human-centered leadership can be a relief. You don't have to be the subject matter or functional area expert. You can focus on honing your leadership skills and supporting your teams. And Susanna says here, the 10 best practices for leading team members who know more than you do. First one, put your ego aside. As a leader, you will never know everything, nor should you. You have teams of talented people for a reason, because your business needs specialization in various areas. Rather than feel you need to be the ultimate authority, embrace a servant leader mentality and ask how you can help. Number two, be grateful. 
If you inherit or hire talented people with significant skills, consider how valuable deep expertise and their experience can be in your organization. You do not have to train this person from the ground up and can leverage their experience and perspective, benefiting culture and operations. As my boss said, when I inherited the team of portfolio managers, that's a gift. Number three, acknowledge their experience and expertise. Let your team members know right off the bat that you understand and respect what they bring to the table and that you will depend on them for their deep expertise. Be open in front of your entire team that you recognize and admire each individual's skills and value their experience. That builds trust and sets the expectation that you need each person to take responsibility for the work you cannot and should not be doing it. Next, provide opportunities to grow. Just because an individual is an expert does not mean he or she does not need training and development. Make sure you ask your team members. Will continuing education or growth opportunities will help to hone or advance their skills. This shows you care about their continued advancement and value their expertise. Next, don't micromanage. While it's always important to provide goals and direction and supervise progress, micromanaging someone who knows more than you about their job can be demoralizing and erode trust. However, it can be difficult to manage progress when you don't understand every element of the job, so create reports and check-ins and help measure milestones or flag risk. Also, seek outside assistance and evaluation. If you're not an expert in a certain area or have little experience in a field or role, it can be difficult to help set goals, determine benchmarks, or even know how to measure success. In addition to asking the person for help, approach external consultants, industry leaders, or human resource experts for their opinion or, for their opinion or input. And ask for input. When creating strategy, goals, project plans, or workflows in your expert or experienced team member's area, include them in the process. You do not need to put them in charge of everything or take all their suggestions, but checking with them and tapping into their expertise, their expertise will add value and let the person know you care about them and that you respect their opinion and experience. Number eight, ask for feedback. As the work progresses, check in with your team members to assess whether goals, assumptions, or process are going as planned. Do you need to course correct? Are you understanding their work and needs adequately? Solicit the team members' thoughts on how you can learn and grow in their area of expertise. Number nine, remove roadblocks. Whether an employee is facing financial or human capital, resources, training, emotional support, process improvement, or any other type of obstacle, your job is to help address problems that are getting in the way of the succeeding. If you do not possess deep expertise in their area, you may need to probe to understand the seriousness of the issue. While you can't necessarily solve all problems, letting your team member know you hear them and will work on what they're shared is validating and a good first step. And finally, number 10, help them shine. Your company's success and your success are the result of your entire team meeting or exceeding expectations for performance. Embrace each person's progress and achievements and highlight them in ways that are comfortable to them. Determining what each team member needs, removing roadblocks, and helping them perform and succeed is ultimately your job and perhaps the most rewarding thing you can do and you just may learn something along the way. Again, this was a column written by Susanna DeBaca. She is the president and CEO of Business Publications Corporation. 
Now some uh, health care news from the business record. Child Serves Des Moines location on Woodland Avenue will be relocated to a new site near the corner of 48th Street and Franklin Avenue that will more than double the square footage of the current space, the specialty pediatric health care provider announced. The location is pending final approval from the city of Des Moines, according to a news release. In 2022, a vacant medical building on the site was raised after it was acquired by Neighborhood Development Corp. ChildServe will build a new facility on the site, a spokesperson said in an email. To support the expansion, ChildServe also launched in October a $10 million capital campaign titled Growing Together, the Des Moines Campaign. Tom Mahoney, ChildServe board member and past president and ITA group board chairman, is chairing the campaign. ChildServe CEO Dr. Terry Walling said the organization has simply outgrown its current facility. Our current wait list for our signature programs continue to grow, so we know now is the right time to invest in the future for Iowa children and families, Walling said in a prepared statement. Capacity for current services include medical child care, its autism day program, and rehabilitation therapy services, and they will increase tenfold at the new location, according to the media release. The 20,000-square-foot facility will also include an added neurobehavioral clinic. It will focus on the population of children with special health care needs who have a co-occurring behavioral health need, such as anxiety, ADHD, autism, brain injury, developmental delay, or obsessive-compulsive disorder. The expansion is part of ChildServe's larger regional growth strategy, which includes enhancing its main campuses in Ames, Des Moines, Iowa City, and Johnston. The expanded Ames location opened in September 2023, and Iowa City's renovated space is planned to open this spring. The Johnston campus will remain the organization's headquarters, according to the news release. In other health news, Iowa Methodist Medical Center receives $1 million endowment for director position. Dr. P. Sue Beckwith, a surgeon and first female graduate of the Iowa Methodist Surgery Residency Program, has made a $1 million commitment to endow the director position of the General Surgery uh, Residency Program at Iowa Methodist Medical Center. Administered by Unity Point Health in Des Moines, the endowment will support the purchase of a new curriculum and technology as well as research by surgical residents and special projects within the program, which is one of eight residency programs under Unity Point Health, Des Moines Administration. Mercy College of Health Sciences and Buena Vista University have announced a partnership to launch a 3-plus-1 nursing program in Storm Lake. In four years, students were in both a bachelor's degree from uh, Buena Vista and a bachelor of science in nursing through an accelerated one-year pathway from Mercy College. Upon successful completion of Mercy College's nursing coursework after the third year, students are eligible to sit for the National Council Licensure Examination. The first accelerated nursing cohort offered in Storm Lake will begin in the summer of 2025. Elsewhere in this edition of the business record, more than $350,000 in CAT grants awarded to two projects. The Enhanced Iowa Board awarded $370,000 in community attraction and tourism grants to projects in Grinnell and Mason City. The Grinnell Historical Museum Society received $200,000 to convert a former real estate space into an accessible museum of the town's history. 
The North Iowa Event Center was awarded $170,000 to construct a 16,000-square-foot horse stable. The grants are given to communities and projects that enhance the quality of life in Iowa. Greater Des Moines to host the next two national speech and debate tournaments. The National Speech and Debate Association, which is headquartered in Des Moines, will host its 2024 and 2025 national tournaments in the metro area, expecting a $22 million economic impact. With 10,000 annual visitors, the events will span across various metro locations, including the Iowa Events Center and schools in Des Moines, West Des Moines, and Waukee. The 2024 tournament is scheduled for June 16th through 21st, and the 2025 tournament for June 15th through the 20th. Power Breakfast Preview, How to Maneuver a Changing, Uncertain Lending Environment. This is an article written by Michael Mendenhall. Companies and entrepreneurs enter 2024 with some positive economic indicators, including strong consumer spending and continued GDP, uh, sorry, GDP growth. But many are watching and waiting for the Federal Reserve to take action on lowering higher interest rates. The effects on lending, borrowing costs, and access to capital could determine a business's growth strategy for the next 12 months. At the upcoming business record Power Breakfast, uh, people will be able to hear from industry experts on what to expect from a challenging banking and lending climate. The event is scheduled for next week, Thursday, February 15th at 9 a.m., and location will be at the Des Moines Heritage Center, which is at 120 East 5th Street in Des Moines. On the panel include Don Coffin, who was the president and CEO of Bankers Trust, Vince Lintz, the executive director of One Economy Financial Development Corp., John Sorensen, the president and CEO of the Iowa Bankers Association, and Murray Williams, the president and CEO of the Iowa Credit Union League. In advance of the event, the business record asked the panelists, what will be the most important developments this year in banking and lending that businesses large and small should be thinking about when considering operating and growth strategies? Coffin said, the most important development this year in banking and lending is that the U.S. economy does not appear to be headed into a prolonged recession. Instead, a temporary economic slowdown or mild recession at worst is now forecasted by many. The expectation now is that the Federal Reserve will gradually lessen its economic tightening campaign and slowly lower its benchmark interest rates throughout 2024 and 2025. Uh, Lentz, in answer to that question, said from an executive director of a nonprofit organization working with minority small businesses, the most important development in the coming year is interest rates and where they are headed. One of the biggest hurdles for small businesses is gaining access to capital, especially minority small businesses. As interest rates rise, so does the cost of doing business with higher costs on business loans and credit cards. Not only does it increase the business cost, it decreases the consumer's buying power, which equates to lower sales and profits. Sorensen said an important matter for bank customers is whether the Federal Reserve lowers borrowing costs in 2024. Although investors are pricing in multiple Fed rate cuts, the follow-through will be data-dependent. Employment and consumer spending are strong but slowing, and inflation is falling back toward 2%. At the Fed's most recent meeting, they left rates unchanged at a 23-year high, but removed their bias toward tightening. The tsunami of new banking regulations coming from Washington, D.C. also impacts lending, there was a time when the priorities of financial regulators didn't blow with the political winds. That is no longer true. 
The Federal Reserve-based endgame proposal could dramatically increase capital that banks would need to hold to back certain lending investment activities. And Williams said, as member-owned cooperative financial institutions, Iowa's credit unions are highly focused on meeting the borrowing-saving needs of her 1.6 million members. Today, our members have less spending power due to increased costs of goods and services, and they are borrowing less due to higher interest rates. As a result, members have been dipping into savings to maintain their current level of consumption spending. This environment is having a direct impact on consumer and small business financial well-being. Another trend is the increasing use of artificial intelligence in financial services. It is critical for organizations to remain both innovative and cautious while implementing implementing AI strategies, especially considering data security. Additionally, fraud continues to pose a rising threat to all organizations. Fraudsters are becoming more sophisticated, so it's critical for financial institutions to keep up with cybersecurity technology, as well as be on the front line of educating consumers regarding fraud in cybersecurity. And again, this was an article written by Michael Mendelhall. He's an associate editor of the Business Record, and he covers economic development, government policy, and law. And you've been listening to the Business Record for the week of February 9th, 2024. Uh, the Business Record on IRIS. Uh, the IRIS is the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicap. I'm Pat Steele. It's been my pleasure to read for you, and thank you for sharing your time with IRIS.